Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Wednesday, May 25th, 2016, hump day of life cycle week. And on this show, we are looking at a therapeutic drug starting from its discovery and following its life cycle onward. I'm Christine Hargis, and here to help me tell the tale is Motley Fool healthcare contributor Todd Campbell coming in via Skype. Todd, how's it going? Uh, it's going great. This is going to be a really fun show. I think it's going to be um, really informational for people. We're going to talk about discovery, development, approval, marketing, patent expiration. We got a lot to cover. I think one of my favorite things in planning for this episode was uncovering how many different companies are nestled within this process that you don't really even think about that much, but they're there and a lot of them are publicly traded. So we're going to provide a lot of interesting investing ideas on this show. First things first, I think we should name our drug if we're going to be tracking it over its whole life. What do you say? I think that's a great idea. All right. So, yeah, you got to tell me what you think. I was thinking we name it Fool Mab. Fool Mab. That's actually too easy to pronounce. But we'll go with that. <laughs> You're right. I need a couple of more like J's and weird syllables in there. <laughs> but for the purposes of the podcast, I think we should keep it simple because Lord knows I'm going to trip over it enough already. Fool Mab it is. So, Fool Mab is born on this lovely May day. Uh, first thing in his life would be discovery. Right. You know, this is going to be a lot of fun because we're going to walk through all of these different stages with Fool Mab. We're going to show you um, how the sausage is made, if you will, or isn't made, uh, as it were, because there, there's there's such a, a chance for failure at any one of these stages along the way. Where the and probably falls in apart. discovery, you've got the greatest chance of failure, right? Because this is where all of the exploratory work is being done. Everything that's investigational at this level, you're basically taking a concept that you might have and you're trying it out. This is all about the Petri dish. Yeah, this is where you've got the dartboard and you're just slinging darts at it. Absolutely. You know, you can you you're going to start out with an idea. You're going to it's all lab work. Then you're maybe you're going to start um, to do some preclinical work where you where you'll take a, a drug full map, as it were. And we're going to try full map out and maybe some mice and see how, you know, those mice react to it. Um, but but again, no human clinical trials at this stage. This is all just we're, we're throwing the darts and we're seeing what sticks. And at this point, they're typically private companies that are involved, um, and you also have your your NIH uh, type grant companies. If you can, you can't really call it a company, but um, not really a whole lot that's investable here. Yeah. yeah, you're talking about right. You've got educators hard at work at places like UCLA that are doing you know the the hard work um, of researching some of these concepts. They're getting funded by NIH. Um, NIH has a massive thirty billion dollar budget that they use and dish out and grant money to to help support the development of these or the discovery of therapies. Um, and then, of course, on on the other side, you've got you know young, very young companies. Sometimes they're getting started or spun out of these um, these universities. Uh, and most of the time, they're backed by venture capital, which means that the average investor, the main street investor, does not have an opportunity to invest in these. And that might not that might not be a bad thing. Yeah, if they were public, I'd imagine that they would be extremely risky at that point. Very much so. I, and, and then if you look at it and say, well, I'm an investor and I want to have exposure to the discovery stage, probably the best approach there is to just consider, okay, who's supplying the beakers to the lab? 
And in in that case, probably the, the biggest out there is Thermo Fisher, symbol is TMO. Yeah, they are a really interesting company because you can get that exposure to the discovery phase of things, but they're not quite as risky. You know, they're they're a big company, they bring in a lot of money, and they have a fairly diverse business too. Yeah, we're talking about a company that does 16 billion in annualized sales. This is not a small company; it's a big company, and it's profitable and it's growing. You know, sales were up 10 percent last. Uh, quarter year over year, um, it's a profitable company. It's generating out earnings every quarter for for customer uh, for their uh, investors. So yeah, I mean this is a good de-risked way to say okay, I want to benefit regardless. Who cares who's going to develop the drug? I want to be involved in the discovery of the next generation of therapies. Well, TMO is a good way to do it. So Fullmap is born and goes into development. Uh, as a lot of our listeners will know, there are three phases of developing a drug. You have your phase one trials, phase two, and phase three. Um, Todd, do you want to give us a quick rundown of what the difference in those phases are? Absolutely. So you've got the the three phases. Most drugs will have to Fumab will have to go through all three of these phases. Um, there's an exception. We'll get to that in a minute. Phase one is more to figure out the dosing. Okay, we've got this great idea in preclinical studies. Now let's figure out uh, with a small trial in humans what the the safe dose is that we can give to to people. So that's phase one. Phase two, you're now saying, okay, I've got the dose. Now let's make sure that it's safe. And by the way, we'll also look to see if it works as a secondary. Uh, Endpoint, but that's phase two, and then phase three is okay. Phase two showed that there's some efficacy; it showed that it's safe. Let's roll it out to a heck of a lot of people and make sure that this drug um, is as good as we think it is, based on our phase one and phase two studies. One company that I want to highlight here is a company that manages all the paperwork involved, because as you can imagine, this is a really complicated process. You have to keep track of everything. There's a lot of information being created that needs to be stored. And so the company is Viva Systems. And you might be familiar with them because of their CRM, uh, Life Sciences IT for sales and marketing. But they also have this Viva Vault part of the business that does exactly this, keeps track of all the R&D information. Right, and Viva is an interesting stock because not only can you, you know, participate in the development stage, but Viva also participates in the commercial stage, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, another stock that might be intriguing to investors to check out is Quintiles, and the reason that Quintiles is interesting, the symbol there is Q, is that they help run all of these clinical trials. So they're going to be working with the Bristol Myers of the world, if you will, in figuring out, okay, where are we going to recruit patients? How are we going to manage? All of those patients, how are we going to manage that data? So that's another company in the development stage that might be worth um, checking out. And they're known as a CRO, which is a contract research organization. And I believe they actually have a, an agreement to merge with IMS Health. Is that right? Right. And in that case, they're going to also move a little bit into the commercial stage as well. Um, that deal uh, could be a pretty important one. This is a stock I'm watching. I don't currently own it, but I'm very intrigued by it. So I want to see how that integration goes with that merger. And if that goes well, um, this might end up in, uh, in at least this fool's portfolio. Um, you know, the, overall, I mean, you and I on the show, we talk a tremendous amount about clinical stage companies. And usually it's phase one, phase two, phase three st- uh, drugs. Investors should probably remember that whenever we're talking about those kind of drugs, phase one is highly risky, phase two is a little less risky, but still pretty risky, and phase three is also risky. I mean, 
you know, you look at histor historical failure rates in clinical trials, and in cancer alone, 50% of phase three trials still fall short. So if you're looking for investment ideas that don't have the risk of trial failure, then Viva and Quintiles are two that you might want to keep in mind. Another one that I would consider very low risk is actually a healthcare REIT, which is a, a real estate type company, um, and they're HCP. So they have over a thousand different properties in senior housing, post-acute care, life science, and medical office buildings. So a good chunk of that is going to be the actual place where you're doing this discovery and development work. And we're familiar with the demographic trends here, and we know that more and more drugs are being created every day because people are living longer, and so they, they need more drugs. And so HCP stands to capitalize on that. Well, what's nice about HCP too is that you know the facilities that all this drug research and everything is occurring in—they're they're complex facilities, right? They're not—you can't just go down the street and rent from another person. You know, they're building these out um, for for clients who have very specific needs, and as a result, they don't have a whole heck of a lot of churn in their leases. Yeah, another point to add to that is, once you get approval for your drug, you can't change it. So, if you have a specific process in place, you're going to keep using that process. Exactly, and we're going to get down to another idea shortly. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but that, that talks about you know the the process, the bioprocess of creating biologic drugs that people can invest in. But I suppose I suppose we could we could jump to approval if you're all right with that now with with Fulmab. Um, let's keep with what you just mentioned about bioprocessing right before we move on. So I believe you're okay. referring there to Replicant, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's the stock I was sort of hinting at. You know, this is a company that basically makes proteins and, and things that are needed in, for the biotechnology company to create their biologic medicine, right? Biologic drugs are complex. They're made in living organisms. And because of that complexity, uh, Replogen has carved out a very intriguing niche, supplying them with vital inf uh, tools that they need to create these drugs. You know, they, they're not a huge company. They've only got about $100 million in, in annualized sales, but they are growing by double digits. Since we are talking about full MAB, um, I want to point out why exactly we're using MAB there. A lot of drug names will end in these three letters, M-A-B, stands for monoclonal antibody. And Replicant, so much of their revenue is tied to the development of these monoclonal antibodies, which is the fastest growing segment of the biologics market. I mean, these are drugs like Humira and Soliris, a really, really important niche of biotechnology. And a significant number of the drugs that are in clinical trials right now and making their way through are biologics. So, theoretically, uh, with thousands of more drugs in development than uh, were, say, 10 years ago, um, their tailwind should be pretty good for this company. So, let's now turn to the approval process. So, you make it through your phase one, two, and three. You have an application ready to go to the FDA. What happens? Right, you figured out what dose, you've shown that it's safe, you've shown that it helps treat the condition that you're targeting. Now it's time for you to put your application together and submit it to the FDA, the regulator that's in charge of either giving the go or no go to market drugs in the United States. So, Fulmab files its new drug application, and in theory, should get a decision roughly 10 months after this application is accepted. 
Right. The FDA will typically accept an application within a couple months of it being submitted, sometimes faster. Uh, and then at that point, the clock starts ticking. It's a 10-month um, they call it a PDUFA date. So if you ever see that as you're going through earnings releases, PDUFA, um, that is the date at which the FDA is scheduled to issue its decision. The decision can come before that, um, and of course extensions can be granted that will you know push that date out, but that's the target date for a decision on the drug. There is a thing called priority review that can get granted to um, for drugs that are, are targeting life-threatening uh, diseases, say cancer, uh, that could be, you know, deliver game-changing, you know, improvements over standard of care. In those cases, priority review decisions usually are a timetable of six months or less. And what's interesting is there can be a market for these vouchers at times, which is kind of a quirky concept. Yeah, there's a thing called a pediatric uh, voucher. And the the whole idea was, okay, if we can try and incentivize drug makers to focus on rare diseases that affect children, um, then we'll get, you know, those cures more quickly. And the way they did that was by providing a voucher that if a drug that targets, you know, a rare disease in a child gets approved, this voucher can then expedite the approval of a future drug. And what's happened is that you know companies are turning around and, and getting these vouchers and then reselling them to other companies. Uh, you know, I think that the biggest sale so far was for three hundred and fifty million dollars. So these vouchers aren't jump change. Yeah, I get the impression that the FDA is not a huge fan of of what has become of these processes. Yeah, the the vouchers uh, basically give you accelerated approval no matter a priority review, regardless of what the drug targets. So I mean, if it could be trusting you know, cholesterol rather than a rare disease. So they're like, well, you know, why should we be giving a voucher out that basically makes us have to speed a drug along um, and take basically resources away from a drug that maybe really should have our our, our focus uh, in approval? Yeah, it's the whole theory of a zero-sum game where if they do more attention on this, then that's less attention on something else that could be potentially even more game-changing. Right. And, you know, I don't want to forget this point either for investors that when you're considering the approval. So, so let's say that a company comes out and says, yay, we've got an approval for Fulmab, right? Investors shouldn't automatically think, oh, right, blockbuster billion dollar drug. I got to get on board. I got to own this stock, right? Because there can be hiccups in that approval that can derail the commercialization efforts of the drug. Hiccups for Fulmab? What are you talking about? I know this isn't inhaled insulin, but you know there there could be some risks. <laughs> yeah, commercialization is not always a, a cut, clear, dry path. Something that matters quite a bit is the label that eventually gets slapped on the drug. Um, this matters quite a bit for commercialization because if you have, for example, a warning on the label that says, hey, there's this huge risk of, of something devastating if you take this drug, it's going to be a heck of a lot harder to actually sell that drug to the doctors and to patients. Right. They're called black box warnings. And all you have to do is basically Google your Fulmab Plus label. And you can read the label. And if it's got the black box warning, then you have to spend a little bit of extra time considering, okay, are doctors going to feel okay prescribing this drug? I mean, if it's for something that's not a life-threatening condition, a black box label can mean, you know, create quite a hurdle for um, a, a drug maker to, to overcome. 
another hurdle for the drug makers to deal with at this point in the life cycle is pricing and negotiating that reimbursement structure with the payers. Right. When we get into the marketing phase of the life cycle, we have, we're, we're de- we have to deal with a lot of different issues. You know, you have to make sure that you're got the infrastructure in place as far as salespeople that can go out and call on doctors and try and pitch the drug. You've got to have the manufacturing in place to be able to produce the drug in enough scale to to be able to fulfill fulfill need. Um, there's all sorts of other things that go are, are involved in in the commercialization aspect. And no matter what, if you can't secure reimbursement from payers like insurance companies, well, you know, doctors aren't going to prescribe it, patients aren't going to pay for it. This is, again, a place where Viva Systems comes in with their CRM, Family of Applications. Um, they will allow you to like market successfully and also compliantly, which is huge. Um, we see this happen every once in a while where doctors are not exactly being marketed to fairly. This was a big deal in China with GlaxoSmithKline a while back, and it is something that comes up from time to time because it's it's a tough landscape to deal with, and you want to make sure that you are playing by the rules here. Right. I mean, FDA approves a label. On the label, it'll tell you what the approved use is. A doctor can prescribe a drug for an off-label use. They're allowed to do that. But a drug maker cannot recommend Fumab for something that is off-label. Okay, so that has to come from the doctor's own decision rather than marketing that's put in front of him by um, um, by the drug maker. And that's where some of these companies have run afoul in the past, where they're going out and they're making claims that they really are not cleared to be making. So let's say you've cleared that phase. Fulmab is successfully being marketed to doctors. It's out there. Everybody knows about it. It's being prescribed. Years go by, and what happens? Well, the one thing that everybody has to know about the life cycle of a drug is that, for the drug maker anyways, is that it's a defined endpoint life cycle, okay? Um, You basically are forced to compete once your patents expire. And there are sort of ways that drug makers will try to get around this, but yeah, Todd, what you said is, is hitting the nail on the head, where it does come to an end, and eventually you're going to face competition from generics that are a heck of a lot cheaper than your original branded version. Right. I mean, generics came on the scene in a big way in the late 90s, expanded dramatically throughout the 2000s, and now roughly 80 to 85% of all prescriptions that are written are for generic versions of drugs. Uh, These drugs are cheaper. They can cost 80% less than the brand name. Um, And as a result, you know, sales for the drug maker of Fumab will fall dramatically once the patent on Fumab expires. I feel like we haven't uh, mentioned a company in a while. What's one of your favorite generic drug makers? I have a, there's a couple actually that I really like. I like on the traditional generic drug side. I happen to like Mylan Labs. Uh, Teva Pharmaceuticals is another one that we've talked about on the show that's intriguing. Um, So those are two companies that investors might want to consider. They're the two biggest stuff out there, if you will, in the generic drug space. There's also a very young, emerging uh, generic industry, if you will, that's associated with biologic drugs. 
And these companies are creating alternatives that aren't exact copies of biologics, but they work similar, and they're called biosimilars. And that's an area that people should be focusing on as well. There's a really interesting article on Fool.com walking you through a bunch of things that you need to know about biosimilars. If any of our listeners are interested, send us an email at industryfocus at Fool.com, and I'll send you that article. It's by Brian Arelli, who's one of our healthcare writers. So, yeah, patent expiration, definitely devastating. But I would argue that the true end of a drug's life is actually when it gets replaced by something new that's more effective and people stop taking it. So, eventually, this drug, Fulmab, it stops getting manufactured and the new generation takes over. So, it goes right. Fulmab. Pat- patents last 20 years, right? But the life's. The- Drug development is rapidly, it's expanding so quickly now. What we know about uh, the human genome and, and the genome of disease is is just exploding. And as a result, drugs are coming on that work faster, better, uh, and that are safer in a much shorter time period than that 20-year window. Yeah, it is kind of a beautiful life cycle. Uh, Todd, I'm happy to have walked through Fulmab's life with you. Thanks so much for, for sharing the journey with me. Uh, if my timing is correct, it's that time of the show where the closing music comes on. Have Listeners, have you noticed the new tunes recently? Thanks a bunch to Motley Fool's production expert, Steve Broido, and our very own man behind the glass, Austin Morgan, for making that happen. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. 